Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. We have a great guest on today. She has had an amazing acting career. I mean, she was on Third Rock of the Sun, which is one of the best sitcoms <laughs> in history. Now she's on a hit show called The Flash, and she's worked so much, but... She recently is a finalist for a fellowship for the Women Right Now competition, which is uh, produced by, well, sponsored by Kevin Hart, I guess. And it's a fellowship to elevate female black comedy writers. And out of 642 submissions, her script, Black Karen, made one of the six finalists and will be shown at Sundance. And my guest is Danielle Nicolay. How you doing, Danielle? Hi, good. How are you? I want to tell you, I want to hear about, uh, I want to hear about your career, but I want to hear about Black Karen and the steps that got you to writing. So tell me about Black Karen. Um, Wow. Uh, Black Karen is something that has been an enormous gift to me, particularly over this period of pandemic, you know, um, having a little downtime at the beginning of the pandemic and also, you know, being forced to spend a lot of time home made me commit more to writing, which is something that I've always done, but I've never been particularly confident to kind of put it out there in the world. And uh, I heard about this fellowship. My husband actually uh, heard about it first and sent it to me and said, you should write something for this. I'm telling you, like, I have a good feeling. And I thought, no, everybody in the brother or sister in this case is going to be writing and submitting scripts for this. There's no way they'll never choose mine but I had this time on my hands. And so I thought, well, I'll just consider it a challenge because there are these really intense parameters that you had to write within. It could only be this many pages and you could only have this many speaking characters and it had to be a comedy. And it was something that um, I knew ahead of time, if my project was chosen, was not only going to be produced, it was going to premiere at Sundance, which means, you know, you have to write something that has some, um, value to it artistically you know you can't just like write a sketch so I considered it a challenge and I never thought anything would come of it and then I was so blessed and happy to discover that they chose my project they chose three of us and um Megan Good the incredible actress who it turns out is an incredible directress as well um she directed my project and most of all Kevin Hart at some point recently looked around at his production company, so I've been told, and realized that if he wanted to elevate women in the industry, particularly black women, writers, directors, actresses, comedy-based folks, that he wanted to put his money where his mouth is, and the Sundance Institute decided to do it with him. And... I got to be the lucky recipient of having something that I wrote uh, and I got to produce, uh, produced, created, and now I even have distribution on it. And anybody who wants to see it can watch it on Peacock. And you can, the title is Black Karen. Feel free to make your assumptions about what it's about right there. (laughs) But to, to go a little deeper into it, it is a comedy about one African-American woman's journey through dealing with anxiety, which I can very honestly say is based on me in that sense. And the fact that we as as Black people, Black women are, are moving through the world right now, sort of post Me Too and post BLM. And a lot of the world is telling us that we have 
allyship and, you know, racism is over and it's only us that's carrying these fears with us. And so in Black Karen, we see a rather amplified version of a woman who decides, well, okay, if that's true, then I'll take a shot at it and I'll behave the way I think a white woman would. And um, spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. I'm gonna actually. I'm gonna. I have Peacock. I'm gonna watch it after this interview tonight. I'm like, I needed something to watch tonight. My wife's watching something else. I said, I'm gonna watch Black Cannon. Please do. What was it like when you opened the pages? I mean, because you know, you look at your resume. You've worked with some great comedy writers, and you've worked with some great comedians. So there's that expectation where you know, I think it's your first script, and and everyone has that. Everyone thinks they're gonna write this masterpiece the first time. I mean, we don't think it, but in the back of our head, we go, I can do that. But what was it like when you just looked at the blank page? Did you already formulate everything and you just let it flow? Or did you go step by step? Like, okay, you know, because some people go act one or this or that. How did you formulate it and execute it? It was so much more difficult than I anticipated it would be. I think probably because I have worked with so many incredible comedians and comedy writers and I've done comedy for the vast majority of my career. And I think my expectation level from myself had to be at least as high, if not higher than the scripts that I have received as an actor and had the opportunity to perform. Right. So You know, I was my own harshest critic and gave myself the toughest notes. I, the whole thing started, I sort of had this idea in my head um, for a while before I wrote this about like, I wonder, I wonder what it would be like to move through the world with the audacity of like a middle-aged white man. Just, and I mean that as a huge compliment and major jealousy for the audacity with which people are able to move through the world. It's something that I wasn't afforded. I'm learning to be audacious now. And it had always kind of like jiggled around my head a little bit. Um, and how funny that could be to watch a woman move through the world in the way that a man does. And I thought, well, that's a jumping off point for this script idea, but how do I get from here to there? And, that part was the hardest and so initially i wrote this kind of i overwrote this like epic (laughs) piece that took place in nine different locations there were expensive cars involved Uh, scene one was at lax it was um it was impossible but ultimately i got in there everything that i wanted to get in And it was from there that I said, okay, now I've got to take what I have and um, narrow it down into the parameters I have to work in. And it actually made me a much stronger writer because A, even though they were coming from me, I had to take massive notes. I had to give myself massive notes. As a writer, you know, you want to write this world, but writers have producers and producers say things like, we can't afford that location or that actor isn't possible to get. And so I had to do that and it forced me to be a better writer and to learn what the most important thing on the page was, which was my main character's point of view. And I realized as long as I wrote from her POV every and, and, and wasn't shy about letting her be outrageous, that everything else would work. It's not about the location. I was 
in the first draft, I was using the location to sell the story and I needed to just let the story live in the character. So that, that was um, a real eye opener for me as a writer. And it ultimately made me feel so much more confident. Um, and I, I think that, I think a lot of writers do that. I think they, I think they write the world sometimes more than they write the characters. Now, do you think it would have been easier for you to write if you hadn't been involved in so many shows and you knew how things work? If you were just not an actress and you were just someone who wanted to write, do you think it would have been easier because you wouldn't really, you wouldn't know, like, okay, well, I've been on this set, I've been on big budget, and, you know, I know this and this. Do you think it would have been easier for you because you wouldn't probably have to overthink it as much? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're, they're... They, they don't say ignorance is bliss for nothing. It's bliss. Like, to to not know means that you don't have to be so afraid. And, and, and of course, there's also, there, ignorance is bliss and knowledge is power, right? Both things equally true and both things equally valuable. Um, and, yes, it would have been a lot easier if I, if I had not ever been an actor and I hadn't been on, you know, a thousand sets and spent 10,000 hours acting and worked with the people that I've worked with because you, you do, you like inside my head, I have this expectation that, that I've got to reach. Now I've, I've talked the bar pretty high for myself. Well, that's good. I, I've talked to a lot of actors who actually have gravitated towards directing. Okay. And they had a reason one, they just said, you know, they act, they act, they act and after a while they want to change. What you said you wanted to write for a while, but what really made you gravitate with writing besides the pandemic? Was it something that you said, eventually I want to do it, and you're pushing out? Because if you're right, we all know how that's. Oh, I'm going to clean my desk off, and then you don't do anything. Right. So, what actually, I mean, was there, when did this idea start planning in your head? I, the idea of writing is something that genuinely I have always done since my earliest memory. Um, it wasn't something I, I, I think that because I started acting so young um, and I know how difficult it is to succeed as an actor, I, I've always had a real healthy respect for not assuming that someone else's job is easy. You know, lo- loads of people in the world want to be actors and they look at what I do and go, oh, I could do that. That's simple. And it's like, no, it's not. It's a craft and it requires study, patience, commitment, uh, you know, a million things that ultimately help you succeed. And I've always had a healthy respect for that in regards to other people's positions, writing, directing, you know, director of photography, whatever it is that you do in our field. And I think I just was always very, very cautious to not call myself this thing writer until I felt uh, I had earned it and that I was respectful of all of the other incredibly educated, experienced and talented people who've put words in my mouth, you know? And so I, I, I have been writing for a long time, um, but I, I also read enough scripts to know that the, the years I was really committing to learning to be a script writer, that I can look at my own work and know that when it's not good enough. And so it took a while of me just writing for nobody but myself. 
until I finally felt like I had, I was writing in a space that was at the level of the work that I receive as an actor. And a couple of years ago, I had finished a draft of a script and I submitted it to um, Slamdance Film Festival. Uh, and I uh, won in that category. And that gave me a lot of confidence. I was like, okay, I wrote this script. I submitted it to a major film festival. I did really well. I amazingly won in this comedy writing category. Okay, now I feel like maybe, maybe I'm onto something I've put in enough hours of, of practice that, you know, maybe I can knock on the door of Carnegie Hall. And that's when I started feeling confident enough to say, okay, something like this fellowship, um, I can submit to them and trust that even if it goes nowhere, I can be proud of what I submitted because these people might recognize my name. And I didn't want <laughs> to send anything <laughs> ever that would make them go, you know what, Danny, we love you, but like, stick to, stick to acting. Now, hopefully you win. And it's just, it's always, it's always great to be a finalist. And I, I talk to so many actors who say, oh, I was on so many pilots that got canceled. I said, yeah, but you were on a pilot, which is so much more than other people do. I mean, right here, you being a finalist is more than the other 640 to 636 people did. If you were to win, and we're hoping you do. What, I already have. What, what would you do? What would you do if, if all of a sudden you were like the, the the grand prize? I mean, would you concentrate more on writing because you have a very successful acting career, and it, and it yeah. must be hard to juggle because you know you have the Flash, and then you probably try to get other work and shoot movies. But what what would you want to do if all of a sudden people were saying, "We love this, Danny. Here's what we're going to do." I think both. I, you know, there are so many writer actor directors even i've worked with so many who do so successfully all the time um and i think that if 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 all things went wonderful and i really had the opportunity to be writing by choice you know i feel like anyone who's lucky enough to succeed in this business to the point where working is a choice that's you know the most any of us can hope for and so to to get to a place where I could choose to write or choose to act it certainly would never be something I would give up one of them I would just be so blessed to be in a position where you know the more successful I am as an actor the more opportunities I will receive to have my work be read as a writer more successful I am as a writer the more opportunities I'll have to be able to you know insinuate myself into projects as an actor um, and hopefully that just, you know, our, those are just two rivers who, who come together to be, to, to flow into an ocean, you know? Now you said earlier, you said you started acting at a young age. Um, mm -hmm. when did you start acting? I mean, what got you into acting? I used to do stand up comedy and I, I, you know, I did it and I always wanted to do it. And I was, I was in college and I was never one of those class clowns, but people said, you're funny. And when I got out of college, my mom said, you should take a class. So I took a learning at this class, and I found where to do comedy. Then I pounded, like as you said, it was a craft. You know, yeah. Every night I could get on stage. And I, I didn't really make the, the jump till I was like 21, but to, to actually pursue what the time was my dream. When did, did you know at a young, a young, young age you wanted to act? It's probably my earliest memory. I, I knew... I remember being four years old and 
sitting on the floor in the living room watching a sitcom and on this in the sitcom it took place in san francisco and i'm from a tiny town in ohio and so the sitcom i was watching took place in san francisco and there was a character on this tv show who was an actor and one of my earliest memories was putting those pieces together going into the kitchen tugging on my mom's dress like i remember she what dress she was wearing and tugging on the bottom of it and asking her if we could move to san francisco because i thought that that's what that's apparently where you live if you're an actor because i character on this tv show was an actor i i just i always knew it was what i wanted to do and um i always felt strangely fearless about it and and i am i am a person who's afraid of everything and it's sort of the one thing that yeah i don't i i never i never had any fear about it it was just it was like a like a driving force i knew i had to do it i knew i had to get to los angeles knew i had to get into this industry and that i needed to be an actor well, how do you do go about that? Because as you said, it's a small town in Ohio. It's not like yeah. you're in San Diego. Or if if you were in like Connecticut, you could go right to New York, you know, to get an acting. Yeah. What was your? How did you end up there? I mean, did you did you sit there and do uh, you know in high school or college or whatever productions, or did you just say at one point I'm moving out there? I my my route was uh, odd, but keep in mind it was planned by a six year old. Um, <laughs> I figured, so I, I kid you not, I was a really headstrong and unusual child. Um, I uh, was a gymnast when I was a kid and from a super young age, I think, I think I got on my first balance beam when I was like three and it turned out to just be something that I was pretty good at as a kid. And I, to be honest, never particularly enjoyed it. I enjoyed performing, but the gymnastics part, I think I was only good at it because I knew how much it hurt when you fell off of the beam or missed the bar. So I just stuck whatever landing I could. Um, and I was lucky enough. So my thought process as a kid was, I knew that if you made it to the Olympics and you won the gold medal, you would get to do the Wheaties commercial and you'd be on the box. So my big plan was I was going to have to be a super amazing gymnast so that I could win a gold medal and do the Wheaties commercial. And I thought if I'm in the Wheaties commercial, I will be discovered as an actor and then I'll get to be an actor. So I, when I was around, gosh, I think nine, nine or around nine, um, I had an opportunity to come out to train at a gym in Southern California. Like I was good enough like that, that as a kid gymnast, I was given the opportunity to like train with real coaches. And um, fortunately my mother was willing to make that happen. And she packed us up and moved us to Southern California for the school year. And I trained in gymnastics and uh, eventually my knees decided that they weren't going to do gymnastics with me anymore when I was a teenager. And, um, I got sent back to Ohio to live with my dad. And that was the point where I thought, well, I got to just tell the truth. And I told my parents that if they, that I all I ever wanted to do was be an actor and never wanted to be a gymnast anyway. And that 
I do not advise this children at home, uh, <laughs> that if they didn't let me do it, that I was going to run away to New York and live on my own because I thought that the TV show fame was real. And I don't know, I thought I could find Debbie Allen on the streets of New York or something. Um, and that I, they had to let me do it. And my mother said, okay. And we stayed out in California and she drove up to, my gym was in Orange County. She drove up to LA and she found herself a temp job in a casting office to try to figure out what the heck to do with me. And uh, fortunately, she was able to do that. And I got an agent pretty quickly and I booked a job even quicker and uh, got my SAG card and all of the hard things that you have to do to get up and rolling in all of it. And fortunately, I was successful enough early enough that um, my my mother, my parents sort of continued to support the notion. And then I was on my own pretty soon after that. Well, you, you were on Family Matters for a few episodes. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. what is what is that like? Because you go, you're you're young. You're going into a show that was very popular. You know, I mean, yeah. I've interviewed William Bickley, who created the show, and it's amazing how that show, how Urkel wasn't even in the, originally on the show. Right. I, I know. mean, it, it blows my mind, and he ended up stealing the show. But what is it like for you when you're on set? Now, you said you have no fear, and then that, that's understandable because when we're young, we don't have a lot of fear. I mean, some yeah. of us do. But what is it like when you all of a sudden you go on a set and you're like, oh, my God, you know, my my dream is coming true. I'm on a, you know, must-see Friday night or whatever it was, TGIF. What what yeah. was going Do you remember? Were you excited? Were oh, yeah. you scared? Or what was going on? All of the above. I mean, I think I was maybe 16. And at that time, that was, I think, the number three show on television. I certainly watched it. And... <clears throat> Yeah, it was terrifying, and, but exhilarating. Most of all, the thing that was most frightening for me as a kid was just not knowing how everything worked. You know, a set is a, 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 a beast of a machine with a thousand moving parts, and each one of them has a name. And I didn't know anything other than, you know, like what a kid thinks they know from watching movies about, I'd been on a couple of sets prior to that one, you know, I did like a movie that was like a low budget movie. And, uh, you know, I'd been uh, like a, a, like a featured extra um, on a couple of sitcom sets. So at least I had a little bit of an idea, like I'd been on a movie lot, but I didn't know how, rehearsal worked or run through um the director on that show was not particularly kind uh to me and so that was really frightening because he was very very aggressive towards me um and so I just sort of I did a lot of looking around at what everyone else was doing and trying to emulate that until I understood what it was so that I could do it for myself so if everyone was holding their scripts during rehearsal, even though I knew all my lines, I was holding my script too. Um, it, you know, I just sort of, I did a lot of acting like I knew things that I didn't know. But at the same time, when show night came, like that first episode that I did when show night came, like I remember 
getting ready to make my character's entrance, there was a diner scene and it was the first time you met my character. And I was waiting outside the door, you know, on the Truman Show wall. And my heart was just like pounding out of my chest. I was so nervous. But the moment I opened that door and the audience laughed at the first line that came out, they were gone, everything was gone. I was in this kind of magical bubble space that all that existed was what was in front of me and I was having the time of my life. Now, once you did that show, and because it was a, such a big show, did that get you a little heat? Like, you know, you always hear, like, someone will do a guest spot. Like, you remember the old Miami Vice, you know, like Julia Roberts, mm-hmm. John Turturro, you know, Ed O'Neill would do these spots, and they would get heat off that. Or even going back to Seinfeld, you know, Jane Leaves, Deborah Messing, you know, all of them were on an episode, and they, it got them heat. Did you get some heat off that episode because it was such a big show, and you were on for three episodes, right? So, I mean, it's something that yeah. they liked you, so they called you back. If they didn't like you, they would have just written you out. But did you yeah. get any heat off of that? Or did you start getting more better auditions? I did. I did. And some of it being stuff that, that people have seen and mostly pilots that didn't get picked up, but was hugely important as a young actor, a very young actor, for that to happen. Um, you know, particularly at that time, there were not a lot of opportunities for black actors at all. And so, you know, I remember a stat from back then that uh, for every white actress in my age group at that time, that I would get one audition for every 40 that a white actress would get. Um, Those stats are better now, but they're by no means even. And so, you know, you had to really hit it out of the park every time or your agent would drop you and it was extremely competitive and I was so fortunate that I did get to do Family Matters because it did give me enough heat that um, I started booking jobs back to back you know some bigger some smaller um, all in the comedy space mostly all in comedy space and it really helped kind of solidify me on television as a young actress and I booked a couple of pilots that they didn't go, but that's okay. It proved to the networks that I could book a pilot and, and prove to me and my agents. So they didn't drop me because kids are, they turn over pretty quickly, but yeah, right around that same time I did, gosh, if I can remember, I did loaded weapon, um, which was amazing. And uh, also Sam Jackson was the first like real life like famous person to ever genuinely like encourage me and um behaved in such a lovely and kind and patient and protective way like he hung out with me the whole time i was doing that movie and made sure that i understood like i try to do it for kids now as the grown-up that i am when we have young young people on set i try to remember like what sam did for me which is like just stick around and help explain to that kid, like, this is what that person does, and this is their job, and this is why you have to be patient with that, and this is what's happening right now. No one's explaining it to you, but this is why you're sitting here, or this is why you sat in your room for so long. Um, 
and got right after that, I went to the Jackson mini series and he even came and like hung out with me for a day on that set because he knew everyone there and he was close by he stopped by and he hung and just kind of like made sure that I was okay, which was such a gift because I didn't have parents in that way. I didn't have guardians. I was, I was so young and I was on my own and, um, I think it would have been really easy for me to like talk to the wrong people or, you know, kind of get lost in the sauce at that age. But yeah, so working on family matters really, it really generated other work for me that continued like throughout my, my, my late teens and through my twenties, like all the way through third rock. Tell me about Third Rock, because, you know, you think about, you look back now, and, you know, Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt has become such an amazing actor. You know, and, and we watch him, you know, when he gets so small. And you have Lithgow, and you, and you have, you know, just an amazing, amazing cast. How did that come about, and what was it like on that set? Because, I mean, Lithgow just seems like a guy that would just crack you up, like, just because he's so intelligent, but he's just... Yeah. Because I know, I, I know the guy who created Trial and Error and Lithgow was on that. He just said it was such a pleasure to work with him. What was it like? I mean, did you was it a long audition process? And did you know you would be recurring? Or what happened? It wasn't a long audition process, but it was a long uh, pilot process, which was strange and like nothing I had have experienced before or since. Um, when I read for the show, uh, the the studio tests like everything just felt really casual which is really nice because I was so I mean what was I 19 you know it's anytime you can be in an environment as an actor where you don't feel pressure it's nice and yeah so I I went in and I read I honestly didn't even think I didn't know I was testing I just thought I was on a callback and found out not too long after that I had booked it, which was really exciting. And I knew the character was meant to stick around for a, a stretch. But when I booked that pilot, it actually was a pilot for ABC, not NBC. And it had an almost entirely different cast. And my character wasn't in college. So in the, that version of the show, John Lithgow was a high school teacher. I was going to the same high school that Joey Gordon-Levitt was because his character would have been a freshman and mine would have been a senior. Um, and the three guys who played my pals, we were all John's students throughout the life of the show, they played different characters entirely. Um, Jane Curtin wasn't on the pilot. Cindy Colley wasn't on the pilot. And so ABC... It was called Life as We Know It. ABC picked up the pilot, and but Carsey Werner, the studio who was behind it, were not pleased with where on the TV docket they wanted to put the show. And they weren't pleased with the direction that the studio executives were trying to take it. And so they bought, they believed in it so much, they bought the show back from ABC themselves, took it to NBC, restructured it. So this is a year since I did this first pilot, right? All this stuff's going on. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. This is a year. I'm the whole year that I'm 19. And um, so they bought the pilot back. They restructured it. They recast half of it. Um, I think I'm the only character that still had her original name. 
And that is specifically because my character was named after Karen Mandebach and spelled like Karen spells her name, who was one of our producers and also an extremely lovely human being. Um, and yeah, so then by the time it gets sort of restructured and rerouted and Jane joins, it turned into this like really kind of perfect sitcom. And I did not, because I was an actor, I did not get to complete college in life. I did, however, go to, I call it acting college on that show. Working with John Lithgow and Jane Curtin taught me how to be a professional actor, how to be a professional in, what did we do, six seasons of that show? I don't ever remember one time that John or Jane were late to work, didn't know their lines. I don't remember either of them ever having a crossword with another person, either of them ever speaking to anyone with anything other than utter kindness and respect. And I'm so incredibly grateful for it. There were things about that experience that were not positive for me, but they certainly had nothing to do with the actors or the show itself. And, you know, I learned, I learned, I learned how to do my job from them. And I try very hard to emulate what I experienced from them as an adult actor, you know, on the other side of it, who's often finds herself in the position where, you know, I'm the lead and there's other people who are not. And it, it was, it, it's something that that I will be forever indebted to both of them, most especially Jane, who just is one of the great loves of my life. Now, the show, because back then, you know, everyone watched, it wasn't the cable now, it's not like this show, this show, so a lot of people, you know, a lot of people watch it. Every, everybody watched So it. you have to be starting to get recognized. What is that like? Because you're young, I mean, people... People watch shows, and you know, I lived in LA for 20 years. And, and when you live there, you get used to it. Like, someone comes into a bar or a restaurant, and you go, Your friends who were visiting are like, Oh my God, that's such a chance. You're like, Yeah, they always yeah, come in. Like, yeah, they come, yeah. the what was it yeah. like for you when you started getting recognized? I mean, do you remember the first time you got recognized? Gosh, I don't know if I do. It, you know, I. I think because I started so young, it just was this kind of organic aspect of life. It didn't mean it wasn't super exciting. Like I remember the first time I got recognized at an airport and that was amazing. Um, because you just, you know, you don't, I, I still don't like, I'm still kind of always surprised when anybody says anything to me. Cause I'm always like, Oh my God, somebody's paying attention. Like how it, how incredible to get to do a job where strangers will pat you on the back for it. Like, you know, my husband makes the most beautiful furniture you will ever see in your life. And he deserves to have someone walk up to him on the street and say, Hey man, how are you? I just wanted to let you know, you do really amazing work. The, the fact that I get to have that in my job, but other people who work just as hard as me that are artists and are craftspeople or, you know, I, I had a really amazing lady named Cynthia today who took my blood. I had to get some blood tests done. She took my blood and I was like, this is a person who deserves to have someone walk up to her on the street and say, holy smokes, you do your job 
so well because that's something that's really scary for me and I hate and I was going to have an anxiety attack and she just like just like that and it didn't even hurt like Cynthia deserves a pat on the back Cynthia Ruiz if you're listening you're amazing um yeah so I don't know that part sort of never stops being awesome because I just I feel so blessed that I get to have that as this like weird side effect of this job now after Third Rock you know, you had some series that were on for a season, and they, you know, they stopped. <laughs> Lots of fun what is, seasons. Well, first of all, what was it like, you know, as you said, I mean, you know, you were working with Jane Curtin, you know, Saturday Night Live, Jane Curtin, like, legendary, yeah. and Lithgow, legendary. legendary. What is it like when you leave, like, such, you, you probably have to go on the set, you have to have high expectations, and unfortunately, those people are higher than most when it comes to talent so what was it like you when you started getting those jobs after like all of a sudden you're like okay these people aren't jane Curtin or john lithgow i mean it must have been hard it was weird it was weird i'm not like it and i worked quite a bit throughout third rock as well you know it because you know you don't shoot all year long particularly even back then doing 22 episodes it's sitcom we worked seven months a year you've got five other months and I would go work on other shows um, or do film. And I, like, I'll never forget the first time I saw an actor answer his cell phone in the middle of a rehearsal. And like, that is something that in a thousand Sundays, John Lithgow would never, ever do. Like, Jay, I've never seen anything like it. Our, and I remember doing other shows and like going to table read and people not, the actors sort of not giving any effort. And, you know, on Third Rock, our table reads were broadcast on NPR almost every week. Like we gave a hundred percent performance at the table read. And yeah, and then I would go do this other show and, you know, people, the actors would be like, yeah, uh-huh. And then, right. Oh, oh, it's my line. Right. Uh, I, I I didn't know what to do with myself. I was so confused. I still sometimes am with that. I'm really, I'm very fortunate. The show that I'm on now, everyone that I work with is such a consummate professional that that aspect, like that experience is very similar that like no, nobody, no, nobody does like, nobody disrespects the craft, you know? Now, we said, you know, you had some shows that went for a season, then weren't. And wasn't. What, is, what is that like? You know, is it sitting there like, do you know, I mean, you have high expectations. You're on a show. I know you're on a show with Deborah Messing, so you have high expectations. And then you show you're on, you know, you have, it's picked up. So they have expectations. They give the order. Yeah. And do you know, like, in the middle, like, do you, do you instinctively go... This is a ship that's really going to go off course, and I'm, I'm going to have to jump and start over. Had that happened any time, or, or, or did any of them actually just blindside you where you went, oh, my God, wait a second. The show ended. Yes, yes, yes to all. So every, sometimes, I, I think I've done, oh, for goodness sake, I think I've probably done eight first seasons of TV shows. <laughs> I've done a lot. And so I'm very experienced at this. Um, there have been times when I was utterly blindsided. I candidly, Starter Wife was one. Um, 
I thought the show was really amazing. I thought that everyone was doing amazing work. And the feedback that I got like out on the streets publicly was also incredibly positive. And we got nominated for a Golden Globe. Like I, I think we found out that we were canceled like the night of the Golden Globes. It was not long after we didn't win. It was either that night or the next morning. Um, so like that one, I was blindsided. But then there are other times when, yeah, you sort of get a sense like you're, you're on episode three and you've already changed showrunners a couple of times, you know, or it's you, you start to realize that the the what the show was about in the first few episodes seems to be shifting. And that is usually because the powers that be are maybe not loving what they're seeing when they're seeing dailies and they're seeing cuts of episodes. Um, and yeah, that's, that's when I've kind of gone, oh, okay, I better, I better not spend this money. I better, I better, don't buy a new car. I'll just, yeah. So during this time of your career, are you still auditioning or are you getting offers or is it both? I, it's both. It, and it, and it remains both for, just about everyone ever you know there's there's almost never a time maybe if you're like Reese Witherspoon or Brad Pitt or you know you're almost exclusively producing the things that you then ultimately are in um there will always be projects that more than one actor wants and you know so part of it is auditioning part of it is just being fortunate enough to receive offers and Part of it also is kind of being aware of what's out there and um, making yourself available to, you know, after a while when you've been around long enough, odds are like you might know one of the producers that's on a project that you hear about or whatever, letting that producer know that you love it and that you're interested. And um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty willing to do that. Like I'm, I'm pretty, when I love something, I know as an actor, as a writer, how important it is to hear that people love it. And so I I have a personal policy to like never let a compliment go unsaid. So if I read something that I love, I'm so more than happy to like reach out to whomever wrote it or is producing it and tell them like, I love it and I want to be in it. And if I can't, there's nothing in it for me, then I totally just want you to know that I'll support it and I'll buy three tickets. Now, tell me about Born Again, uh, not Born Again, but yeah, what is it? Uh, God, I'm Born Again Virgin. Tell me about that series. Oh, that was one of the best times of my life. The, this, it was a really incredible comedy that was written entirely by a writing staff of women, created by a woman, Renata Shepard, who I love and adore, uh, show run by a woman, Alison Faust, and greenlit by... D'Angelo Proctor, a female network executive. All of us were black, all of us were women. Everything was beautiful. It starred myself and two other beautiful black women. And it was genuinely funny. And most of all, I feel like if we had made that show even two years later, it would have hit and be seen in a way that it was too busy kind of laying the groundwork for. Um, it was a show about three single best friends, um, the main character being 
myself she, who decided that she'd had lots of lots of sex and lots of single life and she was stylish and interesting and hilarious and awkward and weird and dorky and she decided that sex was getting in the way of finding true love so she was gonna become a born-again virgin and then of course the perfect man moved in across the hall played by the incredible r&b singer and actor tank um and so it was sort of journeying through her through her hijinks with herself and her two best friends and megan holder and eva marcial and it went two seasons it should have gone 20 and we were on a network that didn't have a lot of experience with scripted programming it was like during that time where like e and pop and tv one and like all of these cable channels were were venturing into scripted but didn't necessarily know how to do it and i think that was the um thing that ultimately meant that you know we couldn't keep going but we did two incredible seasons and i made two three or actually more closer to five like really really amazing friends who i journey through life with now and you know particularly my my co-stars and besties megan and eva and allison our showrunner renata our creator like these are women that i will do anything to continue to work with for the rest of my career for us to just keep getting to make funny together now you know you've made funny a lot of funny and he did central intelligence <laughs> i mean doing that must have been central intelligence must have been an experience oh god yeah because you know it's funny i i talked to Stephen Weber, and he said about The Rock. I said, what was it like acting with The Rock? And he said, he's the nicest person. He goes, Stephen's like, he goes, my mom's an old Jewish woman from Brooklyn. She knew he's a fan. He would FaceTime her. And he just said, I mean, what was that like? Because in Kevin Hart, you know, he's just, he's just funny. I mean, what was that like? Did you get that part easily? Were you, did you know who was starring it when you were auditioning? Or how did that come about? Unfortunately, I did know who was in it when I was auditioning, which made it far more nerve-wracking. Um, <laughs> Kevin and I had worked together several times prior to and in in low these mini pilots that like you you shoot but nobody ever sees. So I had worked with Kevin previously a couple of times and we've always had really great comedic chemistry together. Um and so I wasn't nervous about the Kevin of it all and like he was there for my screen test and he was so supportive and you know, just like pulled me aside and said, I'm going to cue it all up. Like just knock it out of comedy bark and, and we're making you be funny today. Um, Dwayne, on the other hand, I was, as anybody is, he's the rock. Like I'm super nervous to meet the guy, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? You just like meet the rock. Like, how does this even happen? Like whose life is this? And you know, I'm like, I'm five feet tall, like 95 pounds. He's this like behemoth of a human on every level. And within the first time I met him, it was just Kevin, myself, Ross and Marshall Thurber, the director, and Dwayne met up, because there's basically just the three of us in the movie, and met up to have like a private rehearsal and just, you know, work through some jokes and stuff. And so I'm super nervous. And Dwayne comes in and I like put my hand, like, hi, so nice. More like this. Hi, so nice to meet you. And Within five minutes, he had me 
rolling on the floor laughing, was picking me up, throwing me over his shoulder, running laps around the room with me, and then doing the same thing to Kevin. <laughs> he is, everybody says that he's nice. He is genuinely nice. He's engaging. He's engaging and endearing. And the first time he met my husband, my husband's family's from Hawaii. And so he grew up partly there and you know I mentioned it to DJ when we were talking when we first become friends and working together and you know my husband's coming to set and he could only come to set on these couple particular days and I don't know if you've seen CI but there's a scene at the end of the movie um, this aspect of the scene actually did not make the main cut but it is in the DVD extras the director's cut where Kevin and I escaped to go make out under the bleachers like we used to in high school. And DJ, in the middle of us making out, we look up and he's standing there entirely naked because there's a point in the end where he takes off all of his clothes at our high school reunion. And he's just sort of hovering over us. So the day my husband visits the first time is the day we're shooting that scene. And Dwayne is in essentially a teeny tiny thong. Uh, and so this is how I have to introduce him to my husband for the first time. And it was hilarious. He was so more than happy to prank my husband and walk, you know, he's the rock, like walk up. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm standing here basically naked. He and Mike hit it off within mere moments the two of them talking about hawaii within 42 seconds of meeting each other he just has this way of making you feel like you're the most interesting person in the room from like the second you meet him and it's it's just it's so beyond nice you know it just it's there's like nice and then there's like oh wow you see me and that's how DJ is. Like he just he makes you feel comfortable in your own skin when you're around this like legendary human. I've heard, I've heard great things. Now, of course, we have to talk about Flash because you know people love that show. What, what was? I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you must have now a, a whole different crowd base, like that Comic Con base, like that. You know, it's like it's uh, the. I mean, I talked. I I was my friend yelled at me. I was on his podcast, and I didn't know really between Marvel and, and this and he's like I can't believe oh, you, yeah, you, 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 you know but how did the flash come about and it's been on for a long time and it's like WB's number one show I mean yeah. was that something that you read for and you you knew it was a series regular or you you're on it then you left and you came back and now you are a series regular right yeah it was it was it's such a gift in life um I did not read for it it, it was offered to me and and I was on their radar because a couple years prior to Flash being created, I had done a film uh, that was written by uh, one of the creators of The Flash. And so we had gotten to know each other. He had obviously gotten to know my work. And it was season one of The Flash. I got a call from him saying, hey, I've written this character and I want you to play it. And would you like to come on? The intention is for her to be on the show full time, starting like the end of season one into season two. Um, you know, she's this character that's actually in the comic books. 
and we're gonna you know like eventually give her superpowers and all of this but she's gonna start out as joe's love interest and i was like absolutely this is the kind of show that i watched when i was a kid like i can't imagine anything better so i came on i did a few episodes tail end of season one and right around the time that i think i was doing my third episode i had already done the pilot for born again virgin and it got picked up so i couldn't stay on flash i had to go shoot born again virgin and in the meantime i also got central intelligence and so i was shooting ci and born again virgin at the same time over the course of like seven months so flash just kind of went away they sort of made my character disappear and i thought well what a bummer like i really would have loved to be on that show and I had the most incredible good fortune that when it hit the trades that Born Again Virgin was over, about a week later, I got a call from the showrunner, Flash, saying, hey, I saw that your show is done. Are you still available? Do you want to finish what we started and come back? Like, yes, of course I do. I can't get up there fast enough. So at that point, it was, about halfway through season three of Flash. So I think I did, I think I did like the last 10 episodes of season three. Um, and then season four, I did half of the episodes. I had a few films that I was signed on to, so I couldn't be there full time. And then as of season five, I was able to be there full time. And so here, here I sit, Cecile Horton, superpower having, Joe West love interest being a proud member of Team Flash. Now, what is it? What, what has it been like with your fan experience? Because as I said, you're, you're, they're very, um, they're very avid rabbit. I don't know how to explain them. I mean, you know, you talk to people who people who talk who've been on Star Trek, and they go, you know, well, I was on like two episodes, and all of a sudden. They know my whole career, you know, and they sit there and they, they, you know, and there's people who were like, it has to be stripped in a comic book. And there's people like other people go, I don't, I don't care. You know, it's, it's entertaining. I mean, that's what we watch TV to get entertained. What have you gone? Have you done any of the cons? I have. Yeah. Now, what's it's that amazing. like? That, I mean, you must be adored. It's incredible. It's, it's just incredible. I mean, yes, being on a show like this means that there's going to always be a small contingent of people who want to hate for some reason but you know 99% of the experience is incredible to have you know as an actor like if you think about all the shows that are on TV think about all the shows that you watch and then think about all the shows that you don't watch and as an actor to be so fortunate as to be on a show that not only has history behind it a fan base that is deeply invested in the characters and watches every week that is so that has a contingent of that fan base that's so invested they would spend their time and their money out of their lives to go to a convention to meet you that is a gift that almost no actors get to have. So for me, like the, the fact that I have that is astounding and, and I will be forever grateful for it. Just forever grateful. It's, it's, it's so cool. I've done so many TV shows that are amazing 
that no one ever saw. No one except my husband and my mom, like ever saw some of my greatest work. And it, it, on so many levels, like the most you can ask for to be on a show that people watch. It's, it's nothing. It's a lot of lightning has to strike in the same place. Flash pun intended. Um, to to have that happen so you know i really really try to enjoy every minute of it what is as you said some of your greatest work what would you say is one two of your greatest works that you've talked about that Um, no one saw i'm really really proud of the work i did on born again virgin um comedically i i really feel like we hit some we hit some great notes there um gosh you know, there's a little movie on Netflix called Deidre and Lainey Robbed a Train. And it is the sweetest, most adorable Sundance film that I got the pleasure of working on. And, you know, it's on Netflix. You'll never really know how many people see it or don't see it. But I'm so proud of that little movie. I'm so proud of that little movie that we made for no money. And we got to have such great moments about and... um myself Rachel Crow uh, Ashley Murray David Sullivan directed by Sydney Freeland uh, who is just she's everything that she's the reason why these Sundance initiatives exist for directors like she just is so incredible um, yeah I would say that like of the things that no one saw Deidre and Laney and Born Again Virgin are probably the two biggest for me now The Flash is this season in the can, or are you shooting it now, or what's going on? The new in the can as of ten days ago. And when does that premiere? Oh, uh, we are currently on right now, season eight. We episode 15, 14 of season eight is on tonight. We're on Wednesday nights at eight o'clock, and then uh, of course we're always on Netflix. And then we're picked up for a season nine, which is really exciting. So I know, I know we're we're going back to continue telling the story. So what are you going to do between now and season nine, besides with Sundance and then uh, Black Iron? You probably sit there and start writing again. But do you have anything booked? Do you have anything? Have you been shooting anything, or what's what's in your near future? I I am going to write. I am writing, and um, I have an opportunity ahead of me to possibly direct something uh, coming up this year and so i'm this hiatus for me is mostly about learning if there if the right job comes along and i feel like it's worth traveling to then i'll do it but my plan for these few months that i have off is to get some writing done and to learn i'm taking classes and and learning what i can about directing because you know like i was saying before with anything else every job in this business is a craft and i i don't approach any job uh, lightly just because I've, I've done this one for a long time. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time and talking to me and people um, are your social media. What are your, what, what's your social media? Uh, on all fronts. It's at Danny Nicolet, D-A-N-I-N-I-C-O-L-E-T. So people go follow her, go look at her IMDb. There's some really good stuff in that. And if you have Peacock, you got to watch Black Karen. Yes, and if please. you don't, I'm going to be disappointed. To. I'm, I'm going to watch it tonight. I think it depends. I'm going to get done. I'll see what my wife is. She wants. We're, we get. We watch completely different things, but she has her shows going. And if, if her shows, we have some we watch together, so it may be that. But I'm going to say, you're watching with me, honey. And she'll go, okay. So people, go watch Black Karen. Go follow Danny. 
uh, Nicolay. And uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Twitter's at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, and I'll talk to you guys next time.